Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment. It is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment. Hello, and welcome to... Actually, you know what? No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do I'm gonna do something different first. Before um, we actually get into this episode, uh, I want to give a disclaimer. Um, we're going to be talking about trauma today. I, wa I want to talk about this before we got into, like, you know, laughing around, introducing ourselves and everything like that. We're going to be talking about trauma, so if you need to just hop out now because that's not something you want to hear about, feel free to. Do not f feel like you owe us a, a view or anything like that. We're going to be talking about trauma today, pretty honestly, so if that's not something that you want to hear about, you you know enough about it, go the, the, go check out another stream that's going to make you feel good today. Um, but uh, yeah, so with that disclaimer out of the way, hello, welcome to Champions of Psychology, a show with the goal of openly talking about mental health and gaming, presented by Codename Entertainment and TakeThis.org. Every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time here on twitch.tv slash Games or later on your favorite podcast service, Mitra Jordan and Rafael Bucamazzo, a.k.a. Dr. B, talk about mental health in these unprecedented times as well as how gaming affects us. I wonder how long I'm going to have to have that unprecedented times part in it. Uh, if you are here in the chat, you can leave a question that I, Trevor Bettis, will ask them later in the show. And like I said, our topic today is uh, trauma. But before we get to that, uh, who are you for the fine folks who may not know? I'm Mitra Jordan. I mean, it says so right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, we need that laugh because there's right? going to be so few yeah. of them in this episode. Yeah. Again, no, that's no, why no. I wanted to do the disclaimer then. I, I, I'm <laughs> promising the two of them laughs. Um, I work as a, I live and work as a therapist in Victoria, British Columbia. I'm a registered clinical counselor. And actually, I work with trauma a lot. So this is a topic that I'm comfortable with. Um, but it's okay if you aren't. Like, this is a tough topic, but we want to also briefly address, uh, well, we'll get to that. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. It's okay. My compadres. <laughs> yeah. No, this is, this is, this is going to be a, a, I think a valuable one for, for some people, but like, like Trevor said, if, if, even if y'all are feeling, you know, overwhelmed by this conversation later, perfectly acceptable to just bounce out of here. Yep don't listen listen whenever you need to ultimately take care of you but hi i'm rafael bocamazzo better known as the dr b for long italian name reasons ha because it still gets a laugh it does um, it always will i'm a i'm a clinical psychologist here in washington state and i'm also the clinical director at TakeThis.org, which you know make sure to go give us a follow when we were founded in 2012 we were the first mental health nonprofit to serve the game industry and we do so through education efforts uh, to help destigmatize certain things but i am i am girded in as many shields as i can get my hands on today cuz this is <laughs> this is a tough topic this is yeah. a really tough topic both to talk about um, professionally and personally 
I, I don't think we've had as many tangents during a planning episode than we did yesterday because we all just felt like we were trying to avoid it. Oh God, we were walking, we were just talking around yeah. it so much because this yeah. is this is tough, but it's so mm -hmm. impactful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what? Why don't we start with um, the probably the most important part of where to begin, which is defining what is trauma. Yep. Yep. I guess I'm taking the lead on that one because yes, yeah. you um, are. <laughs> <laughs> so th this is this is something that uh, we we hear all the time. That we hear we hear the term trauma all the time, but like so many terms that are thrown around we often talk past each other with an assumed understanding of what they are. And so that's part of the reason we like to really define terms when we open things up. And so uh, there's a lot of different definitions of what these terms mean. And Mitra is going to get into like big T trauma and little t trauma. Um, but in the strictest sense, in the the DSM-5, uh, a trauma event is something that exposes a person to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. And you can be exposed to that sort of thing personally. You can be exposed to, you know, either it's happening to you or you're witnessing it happen to someone or you can find out about someone you're extremely close to like a caregiver, a parent, you find out that happened to them. And that is um, the, the strictest definition. But uh, a friend of mine who I trained with, who I, I believe is still the editor of the APA uh, trauma journal, really briefly summarized it to me one time as trauma, a trauma event is anything that overwhelms your ability to cope. Basically, it short circuits out your ability to cope. It is so big that your your brain just kind of goes fizzle and it just completely overwhelms you and yeah um it's important it's important to note that most of us in our lives will be exposed or have been exposed to trauma events but it's interesting to note we're going to get into this most of us don't don't develop post traumatic symptoms and there's a really important distinction between those. There's the event and then there's the resulting experiences. And um, I will say, I'm probably going to get kind of emotional during this one. I don't talk specifics publicly, but I have a somewhat significant personal trauma history that um, informs a lot of what I do. And uh, yeah, I don't I don't generally share specifics publicly, but I do share that. Um Mitra, what do you have to say on on trauma as a as a whole? Hmm, I have so much to say on trauma. Um, <laughs> I've certainly got, I've certainly had personal experience with trauma, um, and I've also got familial experience, which some of you will recognize as intergenerational trauma. And I'm going to explain a little bit about how that affects people as well, but. Um, no, it's a topic that's um, really important to me. I do a lot of work with trauma, as I said earlier. Um, most people or many people who come and see me have had some form of traumatic experience um, which has affected them and their relationships. Um, 
and, you know, maybe hampering their lives in various ways. And so getting a handle on how to cope with trauma and how to cope with your own experiences of it is really important and and it's useful. Um, and there is healing on the other side of trauma. I actually made a Twitter post today. Ha ha. I say this because it's so rare. Um, and I Yeah, you finally it. followed me on Twitter today. Hey, I had accidentally unfollowed you, and then I had to refollow you because I was horrified at myself. It was accidental. It let all okay, of 30 okay. seconds. <laughs> <laughs> One post about D&D too many. <laughs> it's all the puns. What can I tell you? Anyway, um, but I uh, shared a picture of little Ursa Minor, who is a gray and white cat, um, whom we got as a kitten, but she definitely had had some traumatic experiences, and I am happy to say she's doing much better now. Um, so, so there's that. Uh, mm. We can definitely do some significant healing from trauma, and we can get a handle on coping with trauma. <clears throat> so, I, and and that's something that we're going to talk about towards the end because we didn't yeah. want to just leave this off as just gloom and doom despair no um but i no. it, I, I do really want to put a, a thing on this nothing we are going to say is advice it is not anything to really help you the best way to get help is by using uh take this uh the, the links on take this and uh you know following the stuff on the disclaimer because this is not an an equivalent to going to therapy right yeah. we, we are we may be therapists but we're not your therapists as we like to say yeah. Yeah. Um, and i'm not even a therapist <laughs> but he's a trevorpist no that <laughs> came out wrong <laughs> okay see somebody's got to bring the laughs today if it's not yeah. gonna oh, yeah. be <laughs> no this is this is gonna be hard because i mean i know a lot of a, a lot of folks who it, it you know one of the more one of the more salient points around post-traumatic symptoms that a lot of people experience, because th this is this is a crucial part of post-traumatic stress disorder, is avoidance. Mm -hmm. Avoidance of reminders of the trauma event that uh, people with PTSD, um, they re-experience yeah. in various ways. And I've, you know, I've seen this in my personal life and my professional life many, many times. Um, my, my dad gives me permission to talk about this. He is the PTSD poster child. And um, we'll, we'll probably get into a little bit of, of that. But um, another thing, because I will, I will lose my mind if I see this come up in the chat, and I, I realize I'm not usually this stern about things, but if I see people joking about the term triggered, I'm, I'm going to lose it. Yeah. Because it's... I, Anybody who experiences actual trauma triggers, and let me let me define what that is. It's a trauma trigger is something, an event which acts as a catalyst towards you re-experiencing your trauma events, event or events in various ways. And it can be on a continuum of things. It may just be kind of an uneasy feeling that comes up, um, but it may be that you're just there you are back in that moment. Yeah, and, and I want to say that's very different than activation, right? You might yeah. be in a situation where you're feeling heightened, you yes. know, um, and upset, but, but you're also in a place where you can bring yourself back down. You can be present. You can also talk about it to people. Mm -hmm. You can say, you know, this is really hard or I'm feeling a lot right now. 
um, and you can leave and take care of yourself. Um, yeah. Being in that state of extreme activation that we call trigger is different than that because it's like being ambushed by these feelings and being in a often wordless state or certainly in a state where maybe you can talk, but not about that. Maybe you can say things, but they're from that place of the trauma experience being in operation in some way. Um, and that's and, why it's so difficult. You know, you might have a panic yeah. attack, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, you might be experiencing, um, you might go wordless. Um, it might be really difficult to know where you are or what's around you. Um, it really takes over. And that's the big difference yeah. between those two states. And and the trigger, the tr when people say trigger in a clinical technical sense that's really what it's doing it's yeah. triggering that yeah. extreme emotional activation yeah. that Mitra's talking about and um I, I I think I think it's it's hard to to put this in context without a, a full definition of post-traumatic stress disorder um because so with PTSD there's there's a couple of important components to it. One is that you've experienced a trauma event, and most most of us have or will at some points point in our life, but not most of us. But most of us don't develop PTSD. Um, and the other parts of it are that you re-experience that event in various ways, whether it's intrusive thoughts, in dreams, uh, full-on flashbacks um, that I'm my dad has struggled with. And uh, it's on varying, varying scale there. But it's an, but additionally, there's a persistent avoidance of those reminders of the event, as well as both emotional and thinking changes. Whether that's either elevated, like hypervigilance, constantly scanning for danger, whether that's being easily angered or enraged. That's a pretty common thing that comes along with this stuff. But, it, it, and another thing that's really important to consider is that, like all diagnoses, this is, it's of such significance that it impacts your life to the point that you are either not functioning the way that you expect to function or you function with extreme difficulty. Mm -hmm. um and so yeah um so so getting back to the whole trigger thing uh, tr it, triggers are literally the things that bring are those reminders of the trauma event it's not just being angry it's not just being emotionally elevated and i, I saw some debate in the chat already about whether that term has been weaponized I, I wholeheartedly believe that term has been weaponized Absolutely. by people who do not understand what it yeah. actually means. It's not being offended. It's not being just upset on somebody's behalf. It's not being sensitive. Yeah. If, and this is part of the reason I get so angry about this is because I experience those. Yeah. And it is so different. Yeah. So, so bloody different. I, I, when, essentially when you're making jokes about like triggering things like you're essentially bullying like that that's that's what it is like it, it you may think it's a good joke but someone who actually is experiencing those things you you're you're bullying them it's yeah i mean yeah. it's a vulnerability and that's what punching down is you're you're taking a shot at somebody who's already suffering yeah that that is a great way to put it punching down 100 percent. so yeah um 
gosh, where are we go? Where are we? Go this is this is part of the reason I said, Mitra, Trevor, y'all are gonna. I, I've got so much skin in this game that you're you're gonna have to <laughs> keep me. I, on I, totally I've been silent funny. because for the most part, because you you're doing a great job. Honestly. Yeah. So I want to describe what happens in a person's body a little bit so that you can kind of get a handle on what it might be like for someone who's experiencing trauma, who's experiencing activation or a trigger, first off. Um, and then it'll help you, I think, also recognize the ways in which we can, this is not something we can um, armor ourselves against, okay? Because uh, the way we learn as humans and the way we've evolved is to cope with danger in order to stay alive, right? And some of you who've been following us for a while or know us know that I often talk about the window of tolerance. So there is a part of our brain called the amygdala that is responsible <laughs> or at least is connected with fight, flight, and freeze Right. And we talk about fight, flight and freeze. What we also don't talk about is food, which is kind of part of this as well, in the sense that the amygdala remembers pretty much from birth onwards um, our experiences that may lead to danger or may lead to survival. Right. So that's the bigger piece. So danger is part of survival. Food is part of survival. You get the idea. Um, sometimes people call this part of the brain the reptilian brain. I don't you know, because we all have it, but it's not really accurate. But what it is, is part of our evolutionary development in order to stay safe. And the reason I'm talking about this is particularly the fight, flight and freeze piece, because when we talk about that window of tolerance, we're talking about the state. Think of my head as between the window. So it's that state within which we can function relatively well. Maybe we feel a little bit of anxious um, intensity, maybe we feel a little bit of exhaustion, right, which is related to freeze, but we generally kind of sail through up and down a little bit. But when we're in um, a traumatic experience, we might be in fight, flight, or freeze, which are kind of outside of that window of tolerance and that ability to bring ourselves back particularly easily. And lots of things bring up survival and the need to survive. And not everything, of course, develops into something which is traumatic, right? So that's important to, to keep in mind because of our body's response to fight, flight, and freeze, um, which is a big part of what we're visited by when we're experiencing a trigger, okay? Which is, it takes us back to the physicality of that experience, um, you know, you might experience your heart pounding, you might shut down. And so that's what we also call a dysregulated state. To be in regulation is to be within that window of capacity. To be dysregulated is to be outside of it and to be outside of our capacity to function well, because that's what traumatic experiences do. So just wanted to bring that up because I think it's important for people to understand what's happening physiologically to their loved ones if those loved ones are in that state where they appear to not really be present, because that, in fact, is what's happening. They're elsewhere. You know, they're back in, a, in an experience that's very, very difficult and painful for them. So. Well, and it, 
that exi- that exists on a continuum of things. Because one of the one of the things that um, I talk about really frequently when we give trainings that take this, especially our like mental health one hundred and one, you know, what is a mental health diagnosis, is that all mental health diagnoses are a whole constellation of symptoms that exi- each one that exists kind of on a continuum. And so there yeah. are thousands upon thousands of ways that things can manifest. It's not like we can, you know, do a culture swab on the back of somebody's throat like we do for strep throat and, oh, no, you've got classic PTSD. We can't do that. Um, it's, it, it, you, it, 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 there are so many different variations. Now, while there are also some commonalities, um, all of these avoidance strategies that people tend to utilize when they're struggling with post that they can struggle with when it comes to post-traumatic symptoms, those exist on a continuum as well. Mm -hmm. Um, For some people, it may just be avoiding uh, difficult conversations because those conversations become the trigger itself. Right. Because some people may have experienced conversations becoming aggressive or dangerous in their history. And so confrontation becomes very difficult. Um, Another piece that I want to address quickly is the sense of um, think of it as like an alarm system. Okay, Mm -hmm. so we all have an alarm system that kind of warns us when there's danger, say a car alarm or a fire alarm. There's going to be some stimuli, whether it's smoke or whether something touches the car and the alarm's going off. Right. Um, For those of us who've experienced trauma of some sort or another, um, that alarm system becomes more sensitized and more easily armed. So. That's one of the challenges in terms of being able to function well is if I'm at a higher state of vigilance because I feel at risk or in danger, that vigilance developed for a very good reason. Okay, so Mm -hmm. take that example of someone who finds it difficult to confront, right? So they're in conversation with someone and that someone gets excited and raises their voice. And the person who is who is finds it difficult to handle confrontation because of a history of, say, a furious parent, um, they're going to start shutting down. And that's their alarm system coming into play to keep them safe. Was it necessary to shut down now in the present moment? Maybe not, but that's what's happening in their body. Because what they learned, and it's not a conscious, what I took in, you know, we can develop consciousness around it. But what they learned is a very basic, I need to stay safe, probably mm-hmm. in childhood. So they're going to shut down at that point. And I mean, that actually, you're, you're, you're bringing up something really important, Mitra. And that's, <sighs> this is adaptive for so many mm-hmm. people. And w- one of the things that I know certain trauma theoreticians are, are, um, critical of the DSM's definition is that it's too narrow mm-hmm. and that it only very specifically applies to uh, that it only really specifically applies to o- events of obvious physical harm or death that are kind of acute they're in the moment and they're really apparent it would would this be a good time to talk about the big t little t trauma oh sure I, I probably so. real yeah. quick yeah, yeah. J- just insert that real quick because yeah. I, I know yeah. we mentioned it earlier but we haven't had a chance to talk about it yeah take it away <laughs> okay so 
um, a big T traumatic event, um, and these are these are definitions that we use as therapists to help people recognize that a traumatic event isn't always a huge thing. A traumatic event isn't always something that a veteran who did a tour of Afghanistan is going to deal with. Okay, it can be something. But that like, is a traumatic event. But that is a huge traumatic yeah. event. But in in the part of the big T trauma experience might be repeated experiences of trauma, like someone who grows up with um, you know a parent who is very neglectful, um, or or really um, you know physically violent. Right? There's the problem with those kinds of bigger events is there is no safety and there is a repeat of the event and you basically learn to live in wartime conditions, right? Whatever those, you you live in survival, you don't really get to thrive. It's very difficult to develop as a person under those circumstances. You know, it's very challenging and painful for people. Um, But a little, a smaller traumatic event can be um, a car accident where you don't necessarily get terribly hurt, neither does anyone else, but it's terrifying in the moment. It takes you to that place of your heart pounding, um, it makes it difficult to drive a car afterwards, maybe, um, or it's really scary to be driving in, you know, in front of a massive truck behind you, you know, if right. you got rear-ended by one, for example, you know, so it's, it is traumatic. Um, what makes trauma, um, what makes it less likely for a traumatic event to lead to PTSD is when you're supported, you're believed. Um, people treat you well afterwards, and you you can get the care that you need to move move forward um, in your experience. So, if, however, um, yeah, somebody is mentioning a car accident that yeah. was traumatic. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there are obviously there are very major traumatic events that might be associated with accidents of various kinds. Um, yeah. So what we're trying to distinguish is ones that aren't so serious, but still people can have an intense experience or a reminder. Like there was the time I fell down my basement steps. Uh, I slipped. Um, luckily, I didn't break any bones, but you bet every single time I go down those steps, I'm remembering that. And that wasn't traumatic, but that relates to the kind of little T experience where your body has a memory of something and there's a, Ooh, okay, you know, and as we say, that's a longer continuum. So that might be oh, very small. And then further along, supposing I fell down and I, I broke a leg um, and my toddler was in the room upstairs and they then hurt themselves. You can see how this kind of thing can be much more traumatic. You know, you want well, to say you're, you're bringing up the idea that um, so this is so. In the in the late 1980s, uh, there was a really a really foundational and pioneering book written by a woman named Judith Miller, where she criticized the definition at the time of uh, post traumatic stress disorder because it was still a relatively new definition at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, we we've had various names for it over the years and largely related to war, um, mm-hmm. whether it's battle fatigue, battle psychosis, um, shell shock. We've got lots of names as related to war but our our understanding of how trauma affects us has really really expand uh, has gotten more nuanced over the years and she created a term called complex PTSD mm-hmm. and 
her her criticism at the time was that PTSD, as we thought of it in those days, was really good at describing the effects of single events mm-hmm. that impact us, mm-hmm. like an adult, uh, a, a, a single car crash as an adult, mm-hmm. or um, a soldier coming back from having experienced a, a traumatic battle, and what it didn't do a good job of describing was chronic developmental mm-hmm. traumatic experiences that repeated over the years and that impacts our lives in a very different way um partially and we're we're going to we're going to talk a little bit more about this probably after we get back from the break um w- coping strategies and mm-hmm. thing because there's there's different factors that lead to resilience and Mitra was largely touch touching on what are um what are called post-event factors but you've also got pre-event factors peri-event factors which are the things that happen right around the time of the trauma um and it, a complex ptsd when it's a what, developmental trauma that appears you know throughout one's developmental history it's going to impact so many facets of your personality Absolutely. In in a way that a single event doesn't. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A single event um, for particularly for a person who has resilience in other areas of their life is not going to uh, lead to the same experiences as uh, events that happen in childhood and certainly multiple events. Um, And briefly to mention intergenerational trauma. um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, so from a personal experience, you know, I have a grandmother whose parents fled a genocide. Um, And that was hugely traumatic for these parents with that baby in their arms. Um, That baby experienced a lot of violence in the home because of that experience of genocide, Um, as well as perhaps a belief around the time that it was okay to beat your kids, right? You know, so early in the last century. Um, and then that child, my grandmother, uh, also lived through the Russian Revolution, which they then fled to go back to the homeland where previously there had been a genocide. So you kind of get the idea that there is a lot going on. And this was a person who was very loving, and I was very fortunate to have a close relationship with her as a child. But definitely looking back at it now, she experienced tremendous trauma in her life. Um, there was some trauma that happened to my mother because of this. Um, there were some challenges in her marriage because of this, many challenges, in fact, because my grandfather didn't understand um, and they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And so this was quite difficult for them both because they were both great people, but not always great together. Um, and she just had a really hard time staying regulated. I, I look back on it now and I think that there were an awful lot of experiences in her life that um, triggered traumatic memory. And as a child, I had no idea what was going on. And this certainly affected my sense of being able to trust what was going on around me. So just to share some of that, that's kind of how that mm-hmm. intergenerational piece can work. Well, I mean, it, if it affects somebody the way somebody orients themselves to the world, it's gonna. Mm-hmm. It, there's a reasonable chance it's going to affect how someone orients themselves to caregiving, absolutely. And especially if left unchecked, and that 
you know those alterations to caregiving style do have that does have ripple effects or it can i should say it's not and we're going to talk about this and i know trevor wants to go to break um it's okay no we're gonna we're gonna go in a hopeful direction (laughs) definitely Yeah, so um, let, let's take a quick break to remind our viewers and listeners of our disclaimer, and then we'll be back to talk about some more hopeful stuff. Well, not more, actual hopeful stuff. Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment. It is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment. Okay, so um, where where do we want to start with some hopeful stuff? Oh, let you know what I I was just talking about it. So could, can we talk about some resilience factors? Yeah, the things the things that lead us to um, coping with things a little bit better and uh, maybe even help us heal through post traumatic uh, effects, Let's or do even it. prevent post traumatic effects. So uh, Mitra already brought up. Uh, post-event factors, the things that the things that can affect us in a positive way after a trauma event, a potential trauma event occurs, and social support, numero uno in terms mm-hmm. of things. It is mm-hmm. dangerous to go alone. Mm-hmm. We all know this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Take this. <laughs> but um, one of the one of the things that can affect that. And this is a really salient point for a lot of sexual assault survivors is the perceived social acceptability of their experiences. And so we've, you know, for a lot of folks who have experienced something like war, well, the most people understand and can can you know wrap their head around okay you did this for a selfless reason and you know you went to you joined the military and you experienced this okay bully on you let's support you but when it comes to things that may be more stigmatized and again sexual assault survivors that's a big part of this Mm -hmm. they may not even report it in fact we know sexual assault is so significantly underreported partially for this reason that people victim blame all the time and and i think people also uh blame themselves and this is because perpetrators are often very good at mutualizing or blaming the victim right you wanted this too that's mutualizing um you led me on that's blaming and so there's all (sighs) kinds of languaging around this which makes it so much worse for someone um who experiences uh sexual assault um and some of the time, uh, perpetrators are looking for people who are more vulnerable, who are maybe new to town or don't have as many supports. Um, or maybe yeah. the perpetrator has a position of power, and this, of course, is what the Me Too movement was about to such a degree um, and continues to be such a profound issue uh, for, for anyone who's abused and assaulted is the power differential 
And therefore, there's not a sense of safety around who I'm going to report to or how right. I'm going to be heard or whether I'm really going to be safe. So right. that's, a, that's a huge problem. It's often someone you know or in your community. So finding a safe place or a safe person to talk to, calling some of those helplines or transition houses, right. yeah, or a safe person who can help you do that. It's such a key and, part of it. And we're gonna, and we're gonna, I, I think, go f- further into this because, I mean, aside from the the lack of social support, and let me get, I'm gonna go backwards before we go forward, is meaning behind. Uh, a traumatic event and that that gets into the recovery aspect of it as well of what's called post-traumatic growth um but you know before we go there the the two other things to consider in terms of our resilience one is is pre-event factors and like our coping style do we have a belief in ourselves generally because this is part of the reason that single event traumas are, are in many, many ways easier long-term to deal with. Not easy, but easier long-term to deal with um, because maybe it, they happen to us and as an adult and our, live up to, our lives up to that point have been pretty good. We've had, you know, we've been raised by loving parents. We've got a good social support network. We generally believe ourselves pretty darn capable of handling things. That's a very different situation than someone who experiences chronic developmental trauma from an early age. So the way we, the, yeah. So our, our, um, our pre-existing coping style is a big factor in this, but so is access to social support systems. And what I mean by that is access to healthcare, access to, to physical safety, Mm -hmm. access to, to, um, you know, all the things you can think of, whether it's food, water, um, physicians, even mental health professionals are getting or becoming more, even more and more of a luxury at this point. Ugh, I hate this. Right. Yeah. I so really do. Mm-hmm. that's, those are big ones. But um, during the, the, the other thing to think about in terms of factors that impact our resilience are post uh, peri event, the things that happen around the event. And the big ones there are things like the severity of the event or events the duration of the event or events, as well as our emotional and physical proximity to those, are they mm-hmm. happening directly to us? Are they a direct? Are they are are they happening to someone? I don't know who's a relative two degrees away. Um, are they happening physically in front of us? Those yeah. are also important things. Sure, the closer we are to such events, the more difficult it is for us to cope as well. And vicarious trauma is real. So if you are mm-hmm. uh, connected to someone who's experienced severe trauma and you live yep. with them, for example, um, so, uh, their anxiety and their uh, the challenges that they experience will communicate the, themselves to you in, in some ways. And that's also, from a human evolutionary perspective, that's adaptive but from a lived experience today in the world it's very difficult you know but i I think that i want to want people to recognize that traumatic experience is the way brain's way of coping with danger and coping with future danger you know the way we remember it uh the reasons we remember it um is designed all to keep us safe in the world after us and it may not be uh adaptive in the way we understand it but 
we have to work with our body and our way of being in order to heal. So, well, can I put it? Can I put yeah, it? Yeah, uh, please. A little. A That's little what different. I like. <laughs> I know I do. I love that we it, both have a different way of expressing it, and one of us or both of us will reach people. Um, so it's perfect. So, something that keeps you alive in one situation may not work the same way when there's no threat to you. See, I love the way he puts that. Nice and it's, simple. It, if you know, if you're if you're in a situation where your life is legitimately in danger a lot of the time, and suddenly you're taken out of that situation and put in a safe place, and you're reacting the same way, it makes sense that you're reacting that way. It's just not going to work as well. Exactly. Thank so, you. yeah, um, something well, it's something I used to tell clients a lot. It makes mm -hmm. sense that you're reacting the way you are. It's just you're not in danger anymore, but your body thinks you are. Right. And that's the thing with that alarm system. Your body thinks you're in much more danger than you are now, but not much more danger than you experienced before. Mm -hmm. It's just the body's way of catching up it isn't the same. We have mm -hmm. to work with the body. Yeah. 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 And now, I mean, that gets us into like recovery and post-traumatic growth and meaning making because mm -hmm. this is something that gets in the way. Um, I can, I've been given permission to speak to my father, uh, my father's experiences. Part of the reason his experiences from the military linger is because he was in Vietnam. You can, I mean, he, if it, he has a morose sense of humor, a uh, very gallows sense of humor, but when people sort of without thinking, thank you for your service. He's like, what did I do? Mm. How, how did I serve you? Mm -hmm. um, because he, you know, in his mind, what was the point of being in Vietnam? And there, what, he can't make meaning out of it. Yeah. And that gets in the way significantly. Absolutely. Absolutely. To feel that you were part of an experience or an event that didn't serve and that you were part of perpetrating that event in some ways or had to be there or weren't you know that's that's a very difficult experience yeah yeah um and so working with a mental health professional um, a lot of people find healing in essentially learning to rewrite the narrative of how their trauma events have come to I'll, I'll 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 be really honest this is why i do what i do yeah i do Basically, if I can use my experiences to help others. Yes. So that is, um, that's my way of rewriting my own narrative. Okay, Please keep talking. Uh, I need to find out what that loud sound was. <laughs> I'll be right back. Um, you all keep talking. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, but you, Mitra, I know you have something to say about being able to essentially have corrective experiences and relearning certain things. Yes, I do. Um, you know, I had a really tough time growing up. Um, and I experienced a fair amount of neglect. I had a lot of loving people in my life who couldn't, who weren't present all the time. Um, and I had a, a lot of experiences that were, uh, that didn't lead me to feel I was worth a whole lot. Or intermittently I was worth things, but then I wasn't. It was very difficult. So... In raising my kids, that's been wonderful in terms of my own healing. 
you know, first of all, I was fortunate enough to be in a safe and, and caring relationship. Um, and then I was able to uh, give my children experiences I hadn't had. And emotionally corrective experiences, that's what we call them, come in many, many different forms. Um, experiencing a safe and caring relationship with a parent, a sibling, a, a child, a partner, good friends, that's part of what's emotionally corrective, to have an experience where you feel nurtured and cared for, particularly with a history of neglect or trauma, is huge yeah. in terms of being able to feel more trust and connection in the world. Mm -hmm. Good therapy was invaluable because I could start to make sense of my experiences um, and why I got hijacked sometimes and um, and what that meant in terms of my history. So making sense of what's happening in terms of the trauma experience and the embodied experience and why you might feel less trust sometimes or less connection or why you disconnect or want to avoid Getting to understand some of that really helps because then we can also advocate for ourselves. We can say, you know what, I can't be around large crowds or loud noises. We can say, you know what, tonight's not a good night to get go out. Or I just need some alone time. Or I need to be with one good friend to get through this, whatever it is that I'm doing. Because those feelings of vulnerability and being hijacked, we need the support of those around us. Um, and we need to know how to ask for it. So therapy is very useful for that as part of the emotionally, uh, the um, corrective experiences we can have. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it does, and you mentioned it can come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say from my own personal experience that it's often been friends and the people closest to me that give me the corrective experiences in the most mundane ways, the most mm -hmm. unexpected ways that because I might be reacting to something as if I am in danger and I, I'm essentially, I'm essentially reacting to them as if they were the thing I'm reacting originally to. And it, it's always the, it, it's always an interesting thing to have someone say in the most loving and accepting way, Hey dude, that's not what's going on right here, but I get it. And then we can just, you know, then for me to sort of orient myself and it takes, it took me, it takes practice because our, we, our bodies train themselves to react a certain way, especially if it's adaptive. Mm -hmm. And in the same way as we all might have certain reactions in a video game we've played enough times, our bodies do the same thing. Um, our, our, our bodies can sometimes do the same thing over time and we re, we can react to danger as if that you know when danger is not there now for some people they still we haven't even gotten into the idea of systemic oppression and marginalization where people actually live in danger and it's not irrational exactly um, and I'm noticing and that's a whole different show <laughs> actually tearing up a little because of because you had shared about friends and um, Okay, did not know this was going to happen. Thought I had this trauma episode in the bag, people. As it turns out, I'm feeling quite emotional because I know in my own life experience, I had a lot of trouble 
asking for help. And I actually still struggle with that. Uh, and I realized a long time ago that it comes from a place of feeling like I can't trust that I'll get the help I need. And it's definitely been a healing experience to have friends and family who will give me the help. But I still recognize and there's a part of me that has a lot of trouble with that. Yeah. Even though by no means in my life am I doing it by myself. Not this show, um, not my life with my family, because I have a wonderful and caring husband and kids. And I know on one level I can ask for help, but this is a big piece of traumatic experience. Feeling like you're alone in it. And so the healing of it has a lot to do with the connection of people you trust. And being seen. Being seen, yeah. exactly. As you are. Absolutely. Yeah. Shiny nose and all. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, we're getting towards the end of this episode. First off, I just want to say thank you both for talking about this and being open to talking about this. Um, I... I I don't really know what others say, but thank you for that because I'm sure it, someone out there is getting something out of this, and I appreciate that you're all doing that. Um, I do want to uh, turn over to the viewers for just a few minutes uh, before we get out of here and uh, oddly very change gears between this show and Bardic Inspiration. <laughs> um, but um, uh, the first question we got was uh, from How to ADHD. Mm -hmm. Uh, is repeating trauma patterns a result of triggers, or is that a different thing? Can be. I think it can be, because it's a way we learn to be in the world, and sometimes it's, I think it's our expectations. Like, if we consider my not being able to ask for help, and then I don't, and then I have an idea that I can't, and I live that way, that mm -hmm. that's sort of a trauma pattern that's getting repeated, I would say. And, I mean... I'll we react to our own traumas in a lot of different ways. Um, I'll, I'll speak only for myself that, um, you know, for me, it's to achieve a need I didn't have. Um, and so, yeah, I know for a fact I have, um, I, I know that I can repeat certain patterns when that, or the, the, when I'm triggered into, thinking that need is not being met or that safety is not there, then I will suddenly do all of my old, you know, standby behaviors that I've practiced so many times over the decades to, uh, to try and get that need met. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it can be common that people can repeat patterns when they're triggered. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, it does look like, uh, how to ADHD clarify a little bit, uh, our, pa our trauma patterns, something that result from a trigger. I mean, I mean, depends on the person. There's yeah. there's so many variate there's so many variables here and so many individual differences. I mean, I think certainly if we think about like avoiding the trigger, right? And so we're working really hard to avoid those states. Uh, so maybe um, maybe we develop other patterns around that that relate to the trauma because they relate to that avoidance because that was a way to stay safe. I think this is one of those things that's super individual. But at yeah. the same time, there is no question that I can see that happening for people. And I see it in the development of adjunct experiences, um, like um, developing 
OCD or high anxiety, right? Which, you know, which by the way, relates... has a real significant overlap with PTSD, obsessive compulsive symptoms. Yeah. Yeah. So those, I would say, are related to trauma patterns, particularly in how they manifest. But it's pretty individual. But yes. Yeah. So many, so many differences, yeah. um, both both from a developmental individual personality and even cultural perspective on how these things can manifest. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Dade last uh, says, because it looks like it's dead last, but it's the A and the E are switched. Uh, question, what do you think of EMDR as a treatment for patients with PTSD? So first of all, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of it is the relationship with the therapist, but then again, there are somatic techniques that I use that have been effective, and for some people, EMDR has been very effective. I would say it's worth a try, but you need to find... <laughs> he doesn't agree. Um, no, no, it wasn't effective for me it wasn't effective it was so for distracting. You. Oh, yeah, there we go. It has <laughs> to be so the right practitioner <laughs> that you click with, <laughs> and it may not be the technique for you. These things are worth a try right? Because they might work for you. But what I would do is if you have a good practitioner to talk to, um, then that's a really good one to discuss with them. What are some treatments? And it may be one that they offer. I still think the most important thing is how, how much safety and trust you feel in the therapeutic environment. Because EMDR and even the somatic work I do, um, it requires that a person feel a sense of safety and trust yeah. in working with me. And so there's usually a heightened vulnerability going into mm -hmm. those experiences. So you don't want it to be your starting point with someone. You still need to feel enough safety and trust in the relationship to settle into the experience and allow yourself to trust um, the lead in that moment who's going to be the therapist. And there, there is, I'll add that there is pretty significant research support for the efficacy of EMDR. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't work particularly well for me because I'm so distractible and the techniques involve, you know, following a finger. But one of uh, the, some people who have criticized the technique have, have posited the idea that um, EMDR's power doesn't lie in the eye movement piece of it because what it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprogramming, which is just so ominous sounding um and they posited that it's not the eye movements themselves it's the fact that you're re that you're essentially examining your own trauma narratives repeatedly and it's ex the exposure to that cognitively that sort of simulated exposure repeatedly that is the therapeutic factor in this now, whether that's true or not, or it has something to do with the eye movement, I don't know. But um, it's been substantiated by research pretty yeah. significantly. I, and I want to add to that, though, that although you're experiencing your trauma narrative, I, a lot of people have shared the idea that it's through a car window or through a window of some sort or lens. You're not there. And, mm -hmm. and, and the experience of EMDR is designed in some ways to remind you that you're safe, you're here, you're now, and we can look at this together. Now, there are lots of other therapies that do that. So EMDR has research behind it. Uh, somatic experiencing, somatic transformation work that has come out of Peter Levine, Alan Shore, uh, Sharon Stanley also has a fair amount of research behind it. So there are other ways of doing this. EMDR is a good one. Lots of people practice it. 
So just keeping that in mind. Um, fortunately, we got to start wrapping things up uh, because it is uh, getting close time for us to hop off the air. Um, I'm not going to do the normal outro because it doesn't <laughs> seem right uh, after this episode. Um, but I want to thank you both for uh, being here and talking about this and uh, being very open about it. Um, everyone, you, you go listen to past episodes if you need their socials and whatnot. <laughs> uh, I also... <laughs> Also want to send a uh, big thank you to our mods, uh, Jay and Mars, who were here through the whole thing. And I gave them the complete permission to mute this if they needed to, because, yeah, this was a rough episode. Um, and, uh, yeah, thank you for being here uh, in the chat or listening later. Um, I hope that immediately after this, you do something that makes you extremely happy and comfortable and cozy uh, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, for those of you who are with us right now, Bardic Inspiration is next. Music uh, makes you happy. Stick around for that and, uh, you know, de decompress. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that is going to do it for this week's episode. So until next week, take care of yourself. Bye, everyone. Bye. Champions of Psychology is meant as education and entertainment. It is not a substitute for medical advice or professional counseling. Discussion of mental health topics will be primarily rooted in research and the personal experiences and self-disclosures of the hosts. While we can provide generalized education and possible mental health resources, we cannot offer any recommendations, advice, or opinions for any specific persons, cases, or situations. We provide these resources and links at our sole discretion, but have not necessarily vetted or reviewed any resource. We assume no liability for the use of the information or resources on these sites, and we encourage you to use your own best judgment. <laughs>